Good morning. Oh, are we on here? Good morning, everyone. What a wonderful group. I think we have a lot of interested people in Russia. So good morning. My name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here at CSIS. I direct our Europe program and uh, coordinate our Russia, Eurasia, and Turkey uh, program activities. I am absolutely delighted to have three tremendous experts to help us talk about Russia today and tomorrow. President Putin, very, uh, in a very timely way, gave an annual address this morning, so I feel like we today can provide a little context to uh, the state of the Russian Federation and looking into its future. Um, let me begin very quickly by uh, introducing our three panelists and then we're going to roll up our sleeves and get right into it. Uh, to my far left, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Vadim Grishin, who is a senior advisor uh, at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, his previous experience, uh, he served as executive director and a member of the board of the World Bank Group from 2010 to 2014. Uh, Dr. Grishin has also served as an advisor uh, to the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia uh, in two periods, from 1992 to 1993, and then the 2006 to 2009 period. Dr. Grishin, welcome. Then we're going to immediately turn to Dr. Arina Kostarina, uh, who's the program coordinator for the Gender Democracy Program in the Moscow office, office of the Heinrich Boll Stiftung. Um, Dr. Kostarina uh, is, uh, uh, focuses on civil society issues in Russia and has previously served as associate professor at the Higher School of economics in Moscow in their policy, public policy department. And last but not least, we have our very own Dr. Olga Oliker, Senior Advisor and Director of the Russia and Eurasia Program here at CSIS. Um, uh, Dr. Oliker, uh, previously to her arrival at CSIS, was the Director of RAND's Center for Russia and Eurasia. And we're going to begin with a deep dive into the economic situation in Russia, turn to Dr. Kostarina to give us the sense of civil society, and, and very much following along President Putin's annual address today, we'll end with sort of what are the foreign and security policy implications uh, of uh, Russia based on its internal dynamics. So with that, again, welcome. We're grateful that you're here. And Dr. Grishin, over oh, to you. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, first of all, I would like to thank organizers uh, of this important forum for their kind invitation and the opportunity to participate in this interesting conversation. And I'd like to specify that I'm here in my own capacity, and I really don't represent the IFC official position on the topic we are <coughs> discussing at this panel. So um, uh, let me start by reminding you about the difference between mathematicians, statisticians, and economists. Mathematicians strongly believe that 2 plus 2 is exactly 4. Statisticians suppose that 2 plus 2 is more or less about 4. And if you ask an economist how much 2 plus 2 is, he would say it would depend on the result you would like to hear. <laughs> so with mathematician, ma mathematical precision, we can say that the Russian economy is still in a homemade economic crisis. According to forecasts, it will have a negative growth, uh, 0.6 percent 
2016, after experiencing a sharper decline of 3.7% in 2015. This means that we are presently witnessing the final stage of a recession. Russia is slowly moving towards stagnation. There are signs of nascent turn around. GDP growth is anticipated to reach 0.6% in 2017, around 1.5% in 2018, and maybe 2% in 2019. The sources of this growth are still unsustainable, including delayed demand, uh, slighter high oil prices, and export-oriented agricultural sector. I remember a couple of years ago, or even one year ago, there were strong voices claiming that the Russian economy would be smashed in a perfect storm through decline in oil prices, Western sanctions, accumulated structural issues, and institutional bottlenecks. It didn't happen, although it was, it, it was clear, and it's clear, and it's clear now, that the Russian economy is weak, non-diversify, along with major problems such as huge monopolization, low productivity, lack of competition, corruption, and non-effective economic policy in general. A deep devaluation of the ruble set the economy back from sixth place to 11th in the IMF global economic ranking, putting it between Australia and Spain. Currently, the size of Russian economy has deflated from 2.1 trillion US dollars to 1.1 trillion, calculated by the nominal currency, current, nominal current exchange rate. Nevertheless, the current economic contraction has been less than it was during the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. Why? There are several reasons. On the monetary side, Central Bank of Russia introduced a floating ruble exchange rate two years ago, which stopped a slump in international reserves and stabilized macroeconomic conditions. Hard currency reserves now, about 390 billion US dollars, is just 100 billion less than at the beginning of the crisis. Public debt is very low, just about 13%. Tight monetary policy had reduced inflation from 17 to 6%. And further normalization could likely permit it to achieve uh, the 4% threshold next year. On the fiscal side, we saw a set of mixed measures, pro-cyclical and uh, counter-cyclical, such as fiscal consolidation, mostly through reduction of social spending, including a slashing of education and healthcare expenditures, and a freezing of salaries and in public sector and pensions. This has caused living standard to fall significantly. Real disposal income fell 10% last year and will likely shrink by another 5% this year. While military expenditures, on the other hand, have continued to grow. The final, and then finally, there is a big informal sector in Russia with up to 30% of all employees. It plays a shock absorbent role, helping to keep unemployment at a low level of less than 5%. At the end of the day, in one way or another, the economy has adapted uh, to low oil prices and financial uh, shocks and sanctions. 
For example, the falling exchange rate has kept government revenues relatively stable and ruble term, although absolute revenues have fallen. At the same time, illusions have evaporated that it's possible to find a silver bullet to tackle all economic issues by shifting economic operation from west to east or by massively substituting import. Past experience hasn't worked deep evaluation and additional trade barriers created under the pretext of anti-sanctions haven't brought about the repeat miracle experience of the late 90s when import substitution became the driving force of an economic rebirth after the Russian financial crisis of 1998. It was a sobering development prompting a realization that the existing model is exhausted and the status quo will only bring long stagnation for the next 20 years. This is one of the scenarios presented by the Minister of Economic Development. We can see today in Russia three or four consequences of this economic deadlock. First, a growing social tension, strikes of truckers, farmers, and me medical doctors, a broken social pact which existed in the 2000s with more than 50% of population it's about 30 million below the poverty line. Um, second, an ongoing struggle between different groups and elite factions because of shrinking pie, which has been accompanied by arrest of a federal minister along with several governors and businessmen. Uh, there is a purge of elites seen by some observers as similar to Lin Kuan Yew policies in Singapore, although I don't show, share this view. Third, a continuation of discussion around future economic reforms with only the lazy not talking about reform in Moscow now, negatively or positively. I will come back to this topic uh, just in a couple of minutes. And uh, fourth, uh, one more outcome. A weak, stagnating economy is really constraining Russian international activity. Allow me briefly to shift my focus from Russian domestic affairs to bilateral economic relations with the US in the context of Mr. Trump's victory, which was an evident surprise to everybody in Moscow as well. I was struck by the fact that the results were welcomed by everybody in Russia, from outer nationalists to so-called systemic liberals, though by different reasons, and aggressive anti-Americanism was put on hold for the time being. The reality, however, is that U.S.-Russian trade turnover today is a negligible 30 or $35 billion, which is peanuts globally. Most countries have modest investments and limited economic contacts, with some exceptions, such as the cooperation between Boeing and Russian titanium producers in the Euros. I completely agree with my friend Jack Broger assessment that this bilateral trade relation is not really a natural one. Jack, who is here in the audience today, uh, based, uh, bases his perspective on 40 years managerial experience in the Department of Commerce dealing with Soviet American and later U.S.-Russian economic relations, explaining that both sides can not be called nature trading partners because they lack commonality of tradition, geography, business, climate, and ups and downs in politics, in policies. 
This means every time there are discussion, special efforts have to be made, and special incentives have to be created for market players. Today, economic relations between the two countries count primarily in the context of financial sanctions and general trends such as posing possible raising of Federal Reserve interest rates this month. Even if the sanctions that have been applied were lifted, it would bring, according to a World Bank report, only short-term relief to the Russian economy, 0.5% GDP growth in a single year. IMF experts argue it could even be 1% or 1.5% extended over two or three years. This, in any case, is not an economic breakthrough. On the other hand, uh, the lifting could open important long-term prospects, especially if structural reforms were to start. The question is whether economic sanctions will be withdrawn by the new administration, whether an improvement in relation will actually take place. I'd rather sex skeptical about a big deal, a package agreement, but I don't exclude some narrow specific agreements. It's still too early to talk about it. We don't know the team of players in the new administration responsible for such policies, but I believe the first meeting between Putin and Trump will be critically important. Uh, and um, at this stage, uh, it's important to pay attention to the unintended consequences of potential new American economic policies, which could significantly impact uh, the Russian economy. Let's take energy. Russia is uh, presently participating in soap opera with OPEC to reduce or freeze oil production. A new Trump team, on the other hand, is looking to increase energy production. And for the first time since 2014, we see an investment increase in tight oil production in the US. Uh, looking at interest rates, if the Federal Reserve starts steadily increase these rates, we can expect growing outflows of capital from developing countries, including Russia. Although outflows drop to a low level of 30 or 40 million this year, let me remind you that in previous years there were much more than 100 billion. In any case, the major point is the Fed's policy will not stimulate inflows to emerging markets. On a question of new American infrastructure projects, they would likely increase considerably the cost of borrowing in international markets. And finally, on the question of military buildup. If such a scenario develops, the military-industrial complex in Russia could use it as a pretext to block any reduction in the defense expenditures, which is now under a fiscal consolidation plan for 2017 and 2018. And finally, just a few words about potential economic reforms. Three scenarios are possible. Preserving the status quo with no reforms at all, uh, leading further to the decline in the standards of living, uh, stagnating economy, and possibly destabilizing an aggressive foreign policy. Introducing a modest set of reform with potential improvement in customs and tax administration, like uh, a World Bank doing business set, 
These reforms could stabilize the economic situation, but they would not guarantee sustainable catch-up development. And the third scenario would involve deep structural reforms. There is a low probability, however, of such reforms being implemented, because to do that would require changing the current vertical power structure in Russia, modify court system, relations between the federal center and local regions, and dramatically decrease state involvement in the economy through the monopolization and privatization. And at this point, uh, without getting into more speculative economic and political scenarios, let me stop here. It would be a pleasure to continue further during our upcoming Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Christian. That was fantastic. Arena, talking about social tensions, talking about the great restrictions that have been placed on Russian civil society over the last several years, help us understand the internal civil society dynamics in Russia today. Well, actually, I would like to start uh, from the observing the situation with the society in general, because I believe it's very important to understand what's going on with people's state of mind in Russia and not only in terms of economy or you know attitudes about politics, but about everyday life and values and desires and all this stuff. And then uh, I will go to, to uh, touch this civil society's situation briefly. So uh, my first uh, thesis is here that Russia now is going to a very interesting but very complicated process of social transformation and values transformation as well. So Russia is not Soviet Union anymore, but still uh, has a lot of Soviet legacy. And uh, for example, um, all Soviet institutions were kind of results of forced modernization because in social spheres, in gender relationships, uh, in early Soviet time, our government introduced us a so-called egalitarian state between different social groups. For example, uh, women in Soviet Union, it was maybe one of the first time in the you know, history then women get all rights, uh, civil rights, political rights, rights, rights to get a great education, right to go to the job, uh, right to get an abortion, right to get a divorce just five minutes after the application. So, uh, it was a time in, during twenties. Uh, it was a time of a very rapid uh, modernization and um, liberation of gender relationships. And uh, uh, Soviet government need, you know, new workers, and that's why they liberated women from all these duties, especially household duties. And uh, it was a lot of uh, free services for people, like free kindergartens, uh, free nurseries free education, free healthcare, and all this stuff. So during 70s years, we have all these things for free. And uh, to be honest, our education and our medical services were quite good compared to the contemporary time, for example, because now we have a total free market. Uh, we still have um, compulsory medical services, but the quality of these services is not good. Um, yeah, and uh, but now uh, we have maybe one good thing, and uh, people in Russia are kind of proud of it, uh, because we still have a specific demographic policy, 
And for example, we have one of the longest in the world maternity leave for women. It's one and a half year of paid maternity leave. So uh, the employer of women is supposed to pay a pretty big share of their salaries and one and a half years of unpaid maternity leave. But still, during all three years, uh, your employer is supposed to keep your working place. So, and that's why uh, a lot of people feel them more or less secure in the labor market. Uh, and during Soviet time, you know, for some women, it was a kind of career to get birth to the children. For example, in my school, I have a schoolmate who was a boy raising with a mother heroine. It was a title in the Soviet Union. So she was a mother of 10 children and it was like ongoing maternity leave for 20 years and then she go to the pensions and so, yeah. <laughs> Um, but, you know, after the Soviet Union was collapsed, all these uh, means of state supporting were kind of destroyed or significantly transformed. And now uh, Russian people live in the society of a lot of insecurity, of lack of support, uh, and not only in terms of economy, because, uh, yeah, now a lot of population still suffering from poverty and we have a huge, um, uh, we have a huge um, gap between, you know, very rich and very poor people in Russia. Um, uh, so uh, this social inequality is a huge deal right now and people are facing a lot of challenges and have to, uh, have to find new orientations in this world of instability. Uh, as for our demographic, politics, because I mentioned it before, uh, during 90s, we have the, the phenomenon uh, which demographers usually described as Russian cross. So it's like the situation that the death rates, you know, increase and the birth rates decrease. So this Russian cross remains uh, till the uh, maybe last three years. And now the situation is slightly getting better. But the rhetoric of uh, demographic crisis in Russia is huge. And uh, Mr. Putin in 2007, I believe, uh, declared that Russian women had this demographic duty to provide new citizens to the country. And the Russian Orthodox Church supported him in this rhetoric. So uh, now we have a huge ideological wave of discussing traditional values. And traditional values means family, like in the center of the uh, values. Uh, and uh, under the family, our, um, uh, you know, uh, people who develop our social and demographic politics understand usually extended family, like not only nuclear family, but extended family, uh, which very important social functions that grandparents supposed to take care of grandchildren, for example, because as I said, now we have a lack of kindergartens and social protection. That's why usually people have to deal with this situation. Uh, and uh, this traditional rhetoric uh, affected, you know, the whole ideology of people because it's a part of the position between Russian and Western values. 
And for example, a um, few years ago, our government introduced another law. It's called uh, Band of Propaganda of Homosexuality for Minors. And uh, according to this law, it's prohibited to, dis to even discuss the issues of, of sexuality with minors. And uh, uh, people in Russia consider themselves uh, more you know, spiritual, more virtuous compared to the West and Americans as well. Uh, and uh, they even have the special word, Europe. So they oppose, like in Russia, we are very spiritual and very traditional, and we are about traditional families. And in Europe, they, some of them are perverts and um, make a good impression on children. Uh, yeah, and they even have a pity to American women, for example, because the situation of political correctness. They say, uh, in Russia, women uh, could stay as a woman. But in America, they have this political and, uh, correctness situation, and uh, nobody could help poor women to, you know, carrying heavy bag bags or just uh, open the doors for her. So, yeah, it's, it's a very uh, comic situation, yeah, but uh, it's still a part of, you know, Russian state of mind and culture. Uh, well, but all this situation is a part of the, uh, the huge hypocrisy right now because we have a huge gap between the ideology and rhetoric and practice. And it affects both uh, political spheres because uh, uh, I believe a lot of you know the situation with our elections in Russia and people don't believe they can influence on something, you know, in political arena and that's why they prefer to focus mostly on the everyday life and needs and thanks to Russian propaganda on TV they feel they isolated from the rest of the world so they have to live in the, within the country and keep their own very spiritual values and uh, people in Russia have a, a very small experience of you know um, living abroad, studying abroad. Uh, only, I believe, 30% uh, of Russians uh, has uh, international passport, and even less percentage have a chance ever, you know, travel abroad, and um, aside of Turkey and Egypt, but it's mostly like beach, uh, you know, beach sand, all this stuff. That's why Russian people maybe even don't know very well what does it mean, you know, Western values, democracy, and all this stuff, because we don't have a lot of dialogues between Russian and the West. And, um, uh, yeah, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned, people don't see any opportunities to make an influence on political life, uh, people still suffering from a huge poverty, and people actually struggling for the decent life. For example, in small Russian cities, people could earn only uh, $150 a month. So you can imagine the lifestyle, and uh, in Moscow, the situation is different, but anyway. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, just maybe a last point here, and then I left some time for our discussion. Uh, my main idea, then I work in Russia, and I work with the different social groups and try to raise the um, 
not education level, but maybe some values and ideas about uh, human rights and democracy principles and civil societies, um, activism and possibility that, um, you know, the, the principles are elaborated by Douglas North, institutes matter. But in Russia, I believe it's more applicable the principle by Huntington, culture matters. And it's really important for us right now, like representatives of civil societies, more focusing on enlightenment of people, on informal education, of raising the feel of solidarity and dialogue and peacemaking and peacekeeping, but not only focusing on our institutions because people don't believe the institutes you know, work at all in the situation. Um, that's why um, it's kind of my opposition to the previous panel session about you know, military services and uh, all this opposition between Russia and America more focusing on dialogue, on solidarity, and new kind of values. I believe it's really important, especially now in the situation that uh, the um, civil society in Russia are going to the, under, uh, undergo the situation with a lot of oppressions. We have uh, several laws restricted the um, activities of civil society actors. Uh, Russian government have banned uh, several very influential international organizations on working in Russia. But still there are a lot of other opportunity, maybe working on the grassroots level and raising solidarity and new values on this level at least. So, Irina, thank you so much. So, oh yeah, we have uh, you know, a sense of an economic stabilization but long-term stagnation. We have civil society and a transformation where rhetoric and practice is different. Help us put this information in the context of Russian foreign and security policy. President Putin today sort of put this at the very end of his uh, state of the address, concentrating on that economic picture. You have been a student and an expert of the evolution of Russian foreign and security policy. Help us understand where this goes from here. So. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about Russian security policy, of which foreign policy is a component, um, from a standpoint of five things that I'm going to be watching over the next year and more. Now, this is a biased list because these are things I'm interested in. So, um, but I do, you know, I, and there are other things that are worth watching, and we can talk about some of them in the Q and A. But I want to raise these five, some of which I think are going to be pretty clear to everybody, and some of them might surprise you. So one of these, and I think this is actually going to be very determinative um, of what Russian foreign policy is going, to be, is going to look like, is how Russia talks about security. And by Russia here, I mean officials, I mean the media, and I mean the public. Uh, and I say this because, as we've, we've already heard on this panel, we've had a number of years of increasingly bellicose propaganda, uh, particularly towards the United States and NATO and Europe. Um, and that's something that's varied over time, but it's, it's reached some pretty astonishing heights recently. Uh, you know, if, if you sit and watch Russian television, you'll find it a bit disturbing. Now, speaking for myself, I find American television fairly disturbing as well, but for different reasons. Um, but, but it's having an effect. Um, in polls uh, that uh, were carried out in both uh, spring of 2015 and fall of 2016, quite recently, about half of Russians said they thought there was a real threat of a large-scale scale war with the West. 
Um, you know, that, that's, that's pretty stunning. My guess is you would not find anything like that if you did polling in the United States. Now, a lot of this is a product of the current standoff. And not a few have speculated on the advantages to Russia of playing up foreign threats. But as, um, as we already heard, this has been tamped down a little bit in just the last few weeks with the election of Donald Trump. So here's my question. What's Russia going to be playing up now? Because if I think about Russia and I think about Russian foreign policy, which is very focused on prestige, it's very focused on playing a global role. So how do you sell that policy to, the, to your country if you don't have a real foreign threat? And if you're trying to sell something else, what are you talking about? Are you talking about corruption? Are you talking about internal security? Or if you really are trying to continue to sell foreign adventures and foreign involvement to the public, how are you explaining it? So I think that's going to be really interesting to watch over the next few months and years. The other thing that I'm going to be watching is spending. Um, now, we all know that Russian defense spending is up, right? I think uh, that's, uh, that's public knowledge in the United States. Um, what's really notable about Russian defense spending going up is that it started going up as a share of GDP, specifically, when Russia's economy started to slow in 2009. So as we already heard, just the fact that the economy is contracting doesn't necessarily mean the defense budgets are, certainly not proportionately, right? They're contracting a bit, but they're contracting from some pretty big heights, and they're still overall, you know, you, you, you see it, you definitely see nominal growth, real growth, we're gonna have to see what happens with the actual spending. Um, so, you know, we're gonna have to look at the cuts, but I also think it's interesting to watch the relationship between internal security spending and, um, and defense spending. Starting in 2005, Russia's internal security budget overtook the defense budget and stayed above it, not by much, but above it, through about 2013. In 2014 and 2015, the defense budget overtook it again substantially, and now it's about double the amount. So this, this is interesting because this goes to what Russia is prioritizing. Again, it kind of goes back to the narrative question. What are they talking about? What are they spending money on? What are they worried about? Where are you putting uh, Russia's tax rubles? Uh, that tells you what the policy really can and cannot do. So then I'm, now I want to kind of, my next, uh, my next couple of topics digged into this a little bit on, on the domestic side. Um, National Guard. I'm going to be watching what happens with Russia's new National Guard, created this year. Took away many of the functions that used to belong to the Ministry of Internal Affairs, which covers various policing functions. It's sort of like a Russian gendarmerie, except it's not. It's certainly nothing like a, the US National Guard. Um, many have shown a lot of concern that this is going to be the government's way of fighting dissent. It's going to be coming from an organization that's central, that's beholden to the president, that's controlled by him in a way that other security organizations may not be, and that it's going to be a way to clamp down on internal dissent. Again, this speaks to what this government is concerned about, if that's, if that's the case. We don't know how it's going to play out, but um, it'll be interesting to watch because it'll tell us whether, again, the priorities are on crime, on corruption, on domestic violent extremism, or indeed on political dissent. Speaking of violent extremism, um, that's another trend line that I think it's really going to be important to be watching. Russia has historically had actually a pretty substantial problem with domestic terrorism and extremism. So I say this and all of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, I know, uh-huh, North Caucasus, Chechnya, yeah, know about that. You're thinking maybe foreign fighters coming back from Syria, returning to Russia, all of that is true. But there's also more to it. 
it's a little more complicated. Now, if you look at Russia's ranking in the Global Terrorism Index, it's dropped. Um, it used to be, and dropping is good, right? It used to be around 9th in 2012, dropped to 11th in 2014, and all the way down to 23rd in 2015. And it's not that everybody else is getting worse, it is that there has been a decrease in terrorist incidents as defined um, by the index uh, over these years. But the evidence of the last year or so, and again, the data is not all in yet, suggests an uptick. Looking at a completely different sort of data, uh, Russian police official data on incidents. Um, so the Russian police officials reported uh, in the first six months of 2016 over 1,300 terrorism-related crimes. Now again, you're talking about some interesting definitions of terrorism. You're, you know, this is not this doesn't translate into 1,300 incidents in the database, but it's a lot, and also 830 extremism-linked crimes. Um, now, Russia's laws on extremism don't differentiate between violence and nonviolence, and not a few people are concerned that political activism again gets prosecuted the same way. Laws introduced in the last year give the government a lot of leeway to go after its citizens on a variety of extremist-related charges for things as simple as posting on social media. Um, but Russia also talks a really big talk on the need to fight violent radicalism. And here the concern becomes one, I would say, of engendering Islamophobia, as well as the persecution of nonviolent religious fundamentalists, uh, mainly Muslims, but uh, in some cases there are other groups that also uh, face problems. How this is implemented varies according to where in Russia you might be. There, there's um, a lot of gradations. But there's a lot to watch here because this is really a huge domestic security problem for Russia. It, it may be a different one as perceived from here when I look at it uh, than perceived in the Kremlin. And the extent to which both draconian and engagement policies are pursued, are seen as effective, what actually happens when fighters from Syria return home, whether to prison or to a hidden life in the forests, is really, it's gonna affect what Russia can do at home, and that in turn is gonna affect how inter Russia interacts with other countries abroad. Because, right, a lot of the talk about the future of cooperation is about cooperation against terrorism. What does that mean when you mean very different things by the word, and you have very different problems at home? I'm gonna close with something that I'm gonna be watching um, because I always watch it, which is Russian nuclear weapons planning and its willingness to talk about arms control. And one piece of this is the saber-rattling, deployments of dual-use capabilities, investment in hypersonic weapons, which in Russia's case may have a nuclear component, which is why I bring them up. This, again, is relevant a lot of, to a large extent from a standpoint of foreign policy signaling, right? And it comes back to, is the narrative one of opposition or is the narrative one of cooperation? Are you tr is Russia trying to demonstrate its prestige by standing up to the United States or by standing with the United States? Um, so I, th you know, I, I think that's all very important and very worth watching. But I kind of want to bring up something else to all of you that you may or may not have noticed, which is Russia's strategic force development. And because when I look at Russian strategic force plans up to this point, they suggest preparation for an arms race, whether it's against others or a unilateral one. There's a building boom, some of which is systems that are long in the works finally coming online, like the Boris submarine program, some of which is new systems entirely, like a heavier silo-based uh, missile, the Sarmat, rail mobile missiles, re other revamped ICBMs. Look, I'm not saying modernization is scary in and of itself. Modernization is good, particularly when your old systems are you know, anti-Diluvian. Yeah. 
Uh, but this is a lot of stuff coming online. And then when I look at Russia's treaty commitments, it doesn't quite add up. Uh, even if I assume everything that's old and needs to go away does go away. Um, the New START Treaty, which was signed in 2011, requires Russia and the United States to stay at or under 700 deployed, 800 total launchers, and 1,550 warheads by February 2018, and to stay there until 2021, which is when the treaty expires if it's not extended. Russia puts a lot of warheads on each missile since it withdrew from START II. Um, it's been very enthusiastic about doing that. So if I do some math, I quickly realized that plans for Russia's submarines get Russia to over 1,100 um, warheads all by themselves. And then if I start adding up the new SS-18, SS-19 follow-on, the Sarmat, each of those can carry 10. If you're going to deploy, what, 46, 50 of them? I mean, this is arithmetic. You're at your new start limits. And then what happens to all these rail mobile and all these other systems? You, can, you don't have to load them as high. You don't have to put that many uh, warheads on each missile. But Russians like to, right? I mean, that, there's nothing in the rhetoric that suggests that's what they're going to do. So, and also the logic of a lot of different systems when your numbers are low is a strange logic. So what says, that says to me is that the Russians are betting on New START not getting renewed and Russia being able to continue to build. Now again, how your budget works out, where you're spending your defense dollars matters, but Russia always spends at least some of them on nuclear weapons. So I think, again, when we think about cooperation, we think about competition, when we think about how Russia sees its place in the world and its standing vis-a-vis -vis the United States, this is going to be something that I want to continue to watch. Um, so I'll close with that. Well, that's a sobering closeout. Uh, thank you <laughs> so much, Julia. Uh, is it just me, or is everyone having a 1980s flashback? Uh, you have stagnation in uh, oil prices and a regime, a Soviet regime in the 80s, struggling. Civil society, in some ways, and transformation are struggling with the practicalities and an, and an arms race potential. So I just offer that uh, reflection from the, from the peanut gallery. Uh, let me uh, just ask each of you one quick question, and then I really want to dive. This is an audience that I know wants to, to roll up their sleeves and, and, and get into the discussion as well. Uh, Dr. Grishin, sort of taking um, Olya's sort of uh, uh, format of trends that she's watching in the foreign and security policy realm, could you help us, uh, what are you watching uh, in, in Russian economic indicators that will tell you whether the dashboard lights start really flashing. You're, you've shown us and demonstrated stabilization, stagnation, maybe some flirtation with reforms perhaps after the 2018 uh, presidential elections. We'll have to see if those are brought forward or not. What things are you looking at? And could you help us understand this, some of the personnel changes that have been, you've alluded to them in your opening comments. I mean, it was quite extraordinary to watch the former economy minister uh, being fired for corruption purposes. We have a new minister now announced yesterday on live television, 34-year-old. Uh, would welcome your thoughts on both the issues and, and the personality. Arena, I'm going to hold you a little bit. I want to, I want to bring you forward to, to where NGOs uh, and, and their role, your very helpful guidance to us about, look, we're not going to be able to do this institution to institution. We need to do this people to people, and I think that's wise. But what we're so concerned about is the labeling of the fifth column, the foreign agents, the undesirables, this language of anything that smacks 
of, of civil society being so utterly suppressed. And I would just welcome sort of where you think that is going. And, and uh, Olya alluded to sort of this domestic suppression, this crackdown, would, would welcome uh, your, your thoughts on that. And then, Olya, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you a little bit on the spot. And it was exactly to your fir first point, so what's next? I mean, this is the Washington game okay. in some ways we all play. So what has to happen? This, the Russian population through, through media is so mobilized. This is a, and, and this is a, to, as a distraction, I would, would argue. What are some of those possibilities? Can we sort of tease those out a little bit? That's, that's a pretty much an unfair question for speculation, but I'm going to have you uh, help us think that through a little bit. Dr. Christian, may I start with you? Yeah, thank you very much uh, for this great question. Um, let me put it in this way. Um, the main litmus test would be uh, what kind of reforms uh, program uh, will be delivered uh, next spring, and uh, uh, is it possible, would it be possible uh, to implement this uh, program of reforms or not? Because Russia with reforms uh, should be focused from foreign affairs to domestic affairs. Russia with reforms will be more open for compromises and uh, agreements. So it's impossible to continue on the track of arm race and uh, start deep uh, structural reforms, without which you cannot achieve uh, decent growth rate and development. So it's trade-off. And we shall see what was happening actually uh, during the next political cycle. Uh, and let me also challenge this uh, dilemma between institution and culture, which was mentioned. Uh, I believe that we made in the early 90s a huge mistake during our transition that we didn't care about institution. We thought more about market, about uh, creation of private enterprises, uh, and uh, ignore sometimes the importance of uh, institutions and the institutions rebuilding and changes in institutions. So that's why I see it's a wrong uh, dilemma. Yes, it's necessary to modify and uh, uh, change some cultural tradition, maybe, uh, and at the same time to pay more attention uh, to institutional changes. We, from economic point, we cannot realize uh, deep, serious uh, reforms in Russia without institutional changes, it's evident. Uh, and um, lastly, uh, I just would like to remind you that though we, it's true that the soaring uh, defense uh, budget, and it's a real problem and barrier uh, to on the way to uh, to find the new sources of growth and to change uh, this negative trends in the economy. But 
it's all in total, Russian military spends, uh, it's just 8% of what the US does on defense. Mm. Thank you. Well, regarding the situation with Russian NGOs and civil society in general, uh, as I mentioned, the, the situation is in kind of crisis because um, during 20 years, a lot of international organizations you know, put thousands and millions of dollars in, Russia, in developing of Russian civil society. And, uh, you know, thousands of people uh, participated in uh, very good educational programs in a lot of uh, democracy university and human rights educational seminars. And uh, I believe it made a huge impact on Russian society in general in uh, uh, forming new way of mind. Um, but now uh, the old forms probably supposed to be changed in some new one. Uh, partly because of Russian government, you know, made this such situation with foreign agents law. For example, I work at Henry Bell Foundation and even five years ago we supported uh, several very influential in NGOs in Russia. Uh, but now uh, having our German money is prohibited for them. Uh, partly because they were claimed like foreign agents had supposed to pay huge fines. Partly because they got a lot of threats from security agencies, from Ministry of Justice and other agencies, and they decided to stop their activities and to liquidate the organization at all. But at the same time, we can observe a new tendency, like growing new kind of activities and approach. Uh, and uh, it's, um, it's very sporadic. Um, movements all around Russia, like people decided we want to influence on something in our life. We want to make a small impact and maybe to create some new solidarity and to be responsible for, I don't know, for our yard, for our children's education, for something else, for our healthcare. So they created new places. We call it common places, new common places like uh, community buildings and people can get together and discuss something and then, you know, growing up and uh, raise their capacity of how to perform and how to be active in something. And it leads to political engagement and activities. It's not only about, you know, clean up your yard, but it's much more. And um, I believe in long-term strategy, it's really important how people now feel themselves and uh, at least they uh, feel they, they can influence on their own life. Uh, okay, they don't um, uh, make a big influence on political situation and they understand it. Uh, they feel themselves fooled by our election system. It's very hypocritical for them. Okay, they uh, participated in election but it's mean nothing. And um, these kind of new activities, they uh, it, gives, uh, it gives people a new sense of what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be active? Uh, and they, they formed a lot of solidarity. Uh, I, uh, me, myself, I feel a lot of uh, you know, demands from different regions of Russia and different social groups. 
even this social group who are, you know, uh, for Putin and uh, for, you know, uh, annexia of Crimea. But even these people want to do something and want to be useful, want to make an influence, and want to live in a better, you know, better country in a better place. So I believe it could be a new response to the, this very challenging situation right now in Russia. So I, at least I hope. Thank you. Oh, yes. So what, what happens next? I mean, I have to say, as a policy analyst, political scientist, I don't, I don't predict things. I just explain them after the fact. Fair enough. I think it is, it's going to be very interesting to watch both from the US perspective if the Trump administration does come in with a goal of improving the relationship. That'll be Vladimir Putin's personally third American president who has shown up wanting to improve the relationship. Um, so, you know, he presumably has some, some views on it. And I think there is a certain amount of distrust in Russia of that. There is a belief that the United States is, after all, the United States, and its interests are in many ways antithetical to those of Russia. In the United States, there is also a school of thought that Russia is, after all, Russia. And even if its uh, total defense spending is equivalent to one US weapons program gone amok, it still has shown the capacity to be very um, to, to cause us some problems on, on the global stage, right? And I think, um, so I, I think there's obviously figuring this out. Um, I, don't, I don't know how it's going to work from the U.S. perspective because I don't know what the foreign policy priorities of the incoming administration are going to be. So I don't know what a deal looks like because I don't know what they want from Russia. Uh, presumably, a deal for the sake of a deal is a terrible idea. But you know, beyond that, I have things I might want, but they're not necessarily the things that this administration would want. Um, you know, much as we may try to convince them. Um, from the Russian perspective, I think there's going to be a real tension between Russia's desire to continue to be active on the world stage and to do that in a way that does juxtapose Russia with the United States, because that's been so successful. I think it's been surprisingly successful. I don't think Russia planned on all of this in you know, a sneaky, uh, dark, smoke-filled room uh, back you know, in 2012 or whatever, that in 2014 we're going to annex Crimea, create a standoff with the West, and it's going to justify everything. I think it was a very reactive set of moves, but what it resulted in was Russia being truly more prominent in ways that from here we might perceive as negative, but in Russia have some real positives, particularly since they do help distract the population from economic crisis. Um, so what do you do from here? Are there ways to continue to use these tools? What Russia has proven, and again, we're back to that defense budget, is that it does punch above its weight. It is capable of identifying ways that it can be effective. Its use of force may have a much lower bar than, say, the, for the United States, but the actual use of force is really judicious. It's generally pretty small scale, which is not something you can accuse the United States of. Um, it's, um, you know, the, the allegations of interference in elections around the world, some of this is almost certainly true, some of this is almost certainly false. At this point, everyone sees Russian hackers under every polling booth, if that's to carry that allegory too far. That's punching above your weight. That means that everybody thinks that the Russians could influence their election, even if they're not trying. So do you give that up? I don't think you give that up. I think you keep trying to figure out how to use it. 
and particularly when global goals are, are not that clear beyond a general prestige effort, especially when you have some specific interest here and there, but you have some room to, evol to, to evolve. Um, I, th I, think, I, think Russia's, uh, I think Russia's foreign policy is going to continue to be adaptive, as it has been, and that's not necessarily good news for the rest of us. Right, adaptive, opportunistic. I think I was struck, Olya, by both your comments and Dr. Grishin, because in some ways it's the consequences, and it's the unintended consequences. We're focusing on the Russian economy, but the Russian economy may be more uh, buttressed by decisions that the U.S. is making based on U.S. economic needs. Uh, consequences of actions and the unintended consequences of those continue to shape the outlook. So we, we try to be so predictive, but uh, we must be very humble in understanding there's so many forces at play. All right, it's time for your questions. Uh, and we have so many in the room. I'd uh, like to do a few things, just a few ground rules. Uh, please raise your hand. Please identify yourself with your name and your affiliation. I'd love to get as many questions as possible. So I'm going to be slightly brutal. Please just ask a question. Please don't offer a, a long comment. Uh, we'll get more uh, involved in that. We have about uh, 20 minutes or so, and I really want to take those questions. So, and I'm also going to start sort of across the room. So, Matt, I'm going to be looking over here. Are any uh, questions in this quarter of the room? Fine, we're moving over here. Matt, we have one question over here. And please stand up, and you have to speak very clearly into that microphone. Okay, well, my name is Cheto Ozel, I'm independent researcher. I'm interested in the Russian, Russian politics because they are in the Middle East, they are everywhere. But the question is, well, with, with all this poverty and economic uh, depression, still Mr. Putin has 86% of support in Russia. How would you explain this? I mean, in, normally in other countries, uh, such depression would really cause serious consequences. Why not in Russia? What's the reason? That's the question. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to keep, keep on sweeping. Are there any questions <laughs> over here? Oh, I'm, did I miss one? Of, oh, yes. <coughs> oh, hold on one second for the microphone, Bill. A question for Olga. This new National Guard, how does it recruit its officers and its enlisted men? Philip Stevenson with the Stevenson Oh, yeah, Institute. Bill Stevenson. <laughs> Thank you. So, okay, the great questions are sort of, and I, I resisted the criminology part, but I'm, we'll go there. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how Mr. Putin keeps his uh, popularity so high. Any reflections on decision-making? And then uh, we'll go to the second question. Dr. Christian, do you want to begin? And we'll just work our way down the panel. Uh, from economic perspective, uh, this uh, Fed years from 2000 to 2020, when income uh, grew significantly, when uh, Russian middle class uh, reinvented. And this is the basic uh, fundamental of this uh, unusual uh, popularity uh, in the period of crisis. Uh, because uh, Russian population never lived so uh, wealthy uh, as in pre previous period of, uh, of 10, 20, uh, 12 years uh, in, in the 2000s. But we understand that this 
uh, good life was based on uh, soaring uh, oil prices. It, uh, it was an unsustainable economic model. It's exhausted now, and it's necessary to sacrifice maybe uh, uh, now popularity and to start reforms. Otherwise, uh, the prospects can be very gloomy from can economic I, point of view. Can I just push you on that? Because it seems to me that this was the lesson of the Gorbachev era that was taken so clearly. You cannot reform. That control and reform are incompatible. Do you believe the regime has already made a calculation um, that, uh, and I think you mentioned in the three scenarios, can it can it meaningfully reform itself? Or has it decided through structures like the National Guard and elsewhere, it just is not going to reform? I, I, I'm going to press you on this, because I think this is fundamental. You're saying to yourself, if, this, if there's no reform, this doesn't end well. Is there any signal about reform? Yeah, there are some signals uh, about uh, intention of uh, authorities to start some reforms. But what kind of reforms? How deep? Uh, uh, they can change the current uh, Russian structure, uh, economic structure, which is a barrier on the way of development. Uh, this is a big uh, question. And I prefer not to connect uh, only with Gorbachev period and Gorbachev experience. Uh, in Gorbachev period, we had uh, uh, a big issue of uh, the task of datatization or necessity to reduce the role of state uh, in economy. Uh, the same problem we have now because uh, during uh, 2000s, the share of public sector uh, grew from uh, 30, uh, 35% to 70%. Uh, you cannot be efficient having such huge uh, monopolized state economy. Uh, but it's a good question, authoritarian regime and reforms. So we saw that not a lot of authoritarian regimes could successfully implement efficient reforms. But uh, we can notice that some observers and experts trying to compare the current situation in Russia with late Franco period in Spain or with Singapore. I believe these uh, situations in countries are comparable. In case of Spain, it was absolutely different uh, period of economic development and political development in Europe. In case of Singapore, it's a tiny uh, state created from scratch with new institutions. Well, more differences than <laughs> any similarities in the situation. But again, to survive, uh, to bring development, you should change. It's a dilemma now. Status quo versus changes. So how it can be solved, we shall see. Irina, civil society, public opinion, supporting President Putin, but obviously very concerned. We have a middle class that's going to be economically disappointed. Uh, how does that factor into future public support for the Kremlin? 
Well, first of all, I believe that Russian propaganda is very efficient here. Yeah, and um, in a lot of cases, people support not the politics of Putin, but Putin themselves like a figure, like a strong man, independent man, who can oppose like America. And you know, uh, during a few recent years, we have a lot of jokes about President Obama, like he's um, uh, in the charge of every every problems in Russia, and uh, if somebody's you know see a hole in the road, they call, okay, it's Obama's fault. Mm -hmm. It's like a common joke, right? Um, but um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, people try to deal this, with the situation and uh, people clearly understand that there is a huge corruption in Russia and um, uh, a lot of uh, in a lot of situations, there are a lot of injustice and inequalities. Uh, that's why I, I think uh, there are several coping mechanisms how people can react to this. And one of these mechanisms uh, consider themselves like a very strong independent state that oppose uh, America and the West and um, should keep some kind of mission to, you know, prevent uh, the world from some kind of mistakes and all this stuff. At the same time, uh, people are disappointed in uh, you know, Europe, for example, because Europe in a crisis with migrants, with nationalism and raising of uh, right-wings uh, ideas, and people, people can observe it and make some you know, notes and uh, maybe believe Russians supposed to, Russia supposed to go to the, another direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is no clearly idea to what direction it's supposed to go because, uh, you know, very complicated situation with economy is still in the center of everyday life. But, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure we, we still have a, a very good solutions to all these directions. So it's a... Uh, New turbulence time, and people try to find some, you know, some uh, some ideas and some um, good ways how to react to this. Oh yeah, reflections. Okay, so um, on Putin's approval rating, I, I agree with everything that's been said. So I'll just add one one additional thought, which is that for a lot of Russians, there aren't many alternatives. I mean, if you're a Russian millennial. Uh, Vladimir Putin's been president or prime minister of Russia since 1999. If you're a Russian millennial, you might have vague memories of the Yeltsin period, but they're not that clear. If you're a little bit older, uh, you remember the Yeltsin period, but probably not as a pleasant experience. And if you're older still, then it's the Soviet Union, the horrors of the Yeltsin period, and Putin. Um, you know, and you can certainly blame him for the troubles right now, or you can think, well, you know, we had some really good years and he calmed things down. And I, I do think that continues to have an effect. I absolutely agree that people separate the policies from the president, right? The approval ratings for the Russian government are nowhere, nowhere near as high. Um, in terms of National Guard recruitment, um, I have nothing remotely resembling complete information on this, but my sense is at present, a lot of this is just transferring uh, units over from other uh, organizations, such as the Ministry of Internal Affairs. So as this organization develops, as we learn more about it, as Russia figures out what it actually is for, because you know they, they, they might even change their minds, um, recruit, how they recruit will certainly be interesting. I don't think there's anything there yet. 
I'm going to go out. Oh, great. I see more hands. I think we've got a little bit of a late warm-up session there. We only have five minutes, though. So I'm going to take all four of the questions, and we'll start. Again, sir, just wait one moment, and microphone is coming your way. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. I'm Peter Shetley, retired from Brookings and State Department. I personally am really ticked at the Russian interference in our election. And I suspect that a vast majority of Americans are similarly really angry about that. And my question is, to what extent is the Russian leadership aware of the anger among Americans on this issue? Thank you very much. And we'll just, we have one right there. Yes, sir, microphone is coming. Oh, sorry, sorry, sir. I have one behind you and then we'll come right to you. Great, sorry. Uh, thank you. Um, very quickly, uh, Russia is, uh, is looking for the prestige um, to be reestablished, not a uh, regional power, but as a global power. So why we not, why will we not grant them the right to come back to the table? Where would that hurt the U.S. or the other powers? And where would that diminish us in any Thank way? You. Thank you, sir. Could you identify yourself, please? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Fotis Boliakis, independent Russiologist. Thank you so much. And yes, sir, we'll have the microphone come right to you. One moment. Yeah, oh, wait, sorry, right there. No, no, it's fine. There's a microphone. Go right ahead. Thank you. Sorry, please. Uh, Norm Dix, former congressman from Washington State. Um, I have a unique question. What about climate change? Uh, is there a concern by the government or the people uh, about that issue? An Arctic question near and dear to my heart. And I know we had some questions over here. Was there a question, sir, over here? Yes, and then right there, Max, thank you. Hi, Scott Klumpner from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Uh, how effective have the Crimean sanctions been going forward? Can they be used to deter Russian aggression effectively? Should we do more, do less, keep them the same? Thank you. Thank you. And we had you right there. Anita, right there. Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't have a question? Oh, one, last one there. Thank you. And then we'll close it off. John Zebri, Department of Defense. Um, we heard about the economy going in the wrong direction, but that currently situation um, being mitigated by the propaganda and the positiveness. I'm curious on your opinions on whether that's a good long-term strategy for Russia or not, or does that end badly or does that end greatly? Just curious on your opinion. Wonderful questions from a wonderful CSIS audience. I'll go in reverse order. Olya, I'll start with you. We'll work down, and we have about a minute to two. Right. Let's, go Let's right do ahead. this very quickly. Um, I'm not sure the vast majority of Americans are that angry about uh, Russian interference. Um, vast majority seems strong. Possibly the vast majority of people in this room, uh, but that's, that's a different issue. Uh, I think that the Russians have denied interfering in the US elections. Uh, the Russians have also accused the United States of interfering in their elections. Uh, I, I really think if I were Russian, I would see this as a comparatively successful operation, should, whether or not it was actually an operation, to be completely honest, because wow, that's a lot of attention, and wow, that's a lot of power attributed to you. Um, Russia coming back to the table. Russia's at the table. It's not as though anyone's not negotiating with the Russians. There have been some symbolic actions of you know, kicking you out of, you know, a club, but it's not as though the members of that club do not still talk to the Russians. So, and I don't think that that's actually hurt them from a prestige standpoint. I don't think that's, the Russians are begging to be back to the G8. That's, that's not the issue. The Russians are actually getting a real kick out of being kicked out, so to speak, because it, it puts them 
it, it elevates their importance. So I don't think that's the issue. I do think it's very important to talk to the Russians, don't get me wrong. I do think it's important to negotiate with them, but they're at the table. They're not, you know, they're, they're not off in a corner uh, not being allowed to talk to anybody. Uh, climate change, so kind of two answers on that, One, maybe three. Uh, there is certainly government rhetoric that's, uh, you know, climate change bad. There is also perhaps um, an opinion held in parts of the Russian government and certainly Russian industry that climate change isn't such a terrible thing precisely because, as Heather pointed out, Arctic uh, ice melts, you can uh, move a lot of stuff through it. There are a lot of grassroots environmental organizations, uh, small, sometimes uh, they get in trouble for it, but there are folks in Russia who are very concerned about the Arctic. Uh, Crimea sanctions, so first of all, the Crimea sanctions were nothing. It's the Ukraine sanctions uh, that are an issue. The Crimea sanctions, mostly personal, very minor, they don't have an impact. Uh, they, they, they were purely symbolic. The sanctions that followed after Russian actions in eastern Ukraine, uh, much more serious, particularly European sanctions. Whether or not they're effective, it depends on what you mean by effect. Do they have some effect on the Russian economy? Yes, they do, particularly lack of access uh, to, um, to financial markets. Is that what's hurting, is that, is that what's causing uh, Russian recession and likely stagnation? No, the price of oil and failure to reform probably have more to do with it than the sanctions. Are they effective in changing Russian behavior? Doesn't seem like it. Um, you know, on the other hand, sanctions historically, when they've worked, they've taken a long time to work. Um, and I don't think I got the last question. What's the last question? Uh, sorry. About the long-term impact of economic policy. Strategy, the economic policy. strategy. So I'll, I'll leave that to Vadim. Perfect. Thank you, Irina. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to briefly touch two things about climate change and sanctions. So as for climate change, Russian officials participated in all official climate negotiations all around the world. But it's not very effective, I believe. And as Olga mentioned, we have a lot of very active new activists uh, who participated on informal part of these meetings. And I believe they have uh, a lot of you know, new waves in Russia to open discussion to the broad audience, at least because maybe five years ago there, is, uh, there was no discussion at climate change at all, maybe just in the north of Russia. Then, uh, you know, aboriginal people are suffering from the natural disaster due to this climate change. And as for the sanctions, uh, I will leave the economic part to Vadim, but I, I can cover the, you know, ideological part of this, and I believe it's it's made a huge ideological damage right now in Russia because Russian people believe that the, the West and the American are against Russian and a lot of people, every time I travel abroad, ask me, do they hate us? Do they hate mm -hmm. Russian? How they mm -hmm. treat you? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very noticing thing and uh, as you can imagine, it's not very good to the, this dialogue stuff I'm you know, advocating for. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you for this uh, great questions. So uh, let me start with uh, climate change. People care. I remember maybe a quarter of a century uh, ago, uh, it was a joke that for northern territory of Russia to have a warmer climate, it, it would be great. But now <laughs> the understanding came that uh, it's contrast, it's problems. I remember fires uh, yes. around Moscow. Moscow. Yeah. yeah, it was a huge problem. 
and uh, melting uh, permafrost. Yes, it's, it's really uh, a big issue. Uh, how effective uh, sanctions? Uh, yes, they, uh, they were effective, but any sanctions effective on the initial stage? Um, they cut maybe 1% of GDP growth uh, of Russia. It's significant. But again, withdrawal of the sanctions cannot bring prosperity. Uh, it can bring just relief. So uh, the main issue, yes, it's better to deal, to find, uh, well, to find solution and withdraw uh, sanctions. It would be important for a successful development of reforms. But the main issue of Russian economy connected not with sanctions, but with structural problems, uh, institutional problems which we have, and, uh, and counter-sanctions. They are more damaging mm -hmm. than sanctions, per se. So. Absolutely. Well, uh, Irina, I think you, you perhaps sort of captured this the best, saying, you know, Russia is searching for a new direction in some ways. And I think we will have a lot to watch in the weeks and months ahead.